0: This is that, you know, that tarnished knight errant who really wants to do the right thing for everyone. And I think that's as fascinating, if not a little bit more, than writing about you know the, the badass outlaw. I'm Michael Tamlin, CEO
1: of Racton Kobo. This is Kobo in Conversation. My guest today is the crime novelist S.A. Cosby author of the 2021 breakout bestseller, Razorblade Tears. His new book is All the Sinners Bleed, the story of Titus Crown, former FBI agent and Charon County, Virginia's first ever black sheriff, who's moved back to the county to live with his aging father. On the first anniversary of his election to sheriff, he's called to a school shooting. A teacher's been killed and the apparent gunman, A former student at a young man whose family Titus once knew well is gunned down by the deputies under Titus's command. The investigation into the young man's motivation leads the sheriff into dark corners of Charon County and the ghosts of its past and present. Sean, welcome to Kobo. Thank you guys for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Charon County isn't a real place, but it's a lot like real places you know. You've built this great reputation for having complete command of setting and atmosphere. So can you tell me about creating Charon County? Why did you want to tell this story in this place?
0: Yeah, sure. So like you said, Charon County is a fictional setting, but it is the amalgamation of many small towns in the South that I've known personally or through uh, uh, friends and family. Um, And for me, the South is sort of the fictional mother of american letters everything that starts in america both good and bad i think starts in the south um you know virginia was the site of one of the, the first settlements in the new world um of course that stain of slavery and, and jim crow still hangs over our nation not just the south um and so for me the setting was paramount. I wanted to tell a story set in a place that it's struggling with its past and trying to define its future. And I don't think any place um, so exemplifies that struggle as well or as passionately or as viscerally as the South. And so when I went about starting to create Sharon, I took pieces from my hometown of Matthews, Virginia, the town that I live in now, Gloucester, Virginia, um, places like Raleigh and Durham and uh, um, places out to the far west, like Charlotte and and Smith Mountain Lake and Roanoke, Um, because those places are familiar to me, but they also allow me a jumping off point to sort of illustrate um, the ideas and the cultural and societal norms that exist in the South, both for good and for ill.
1: Let's talk a bit about the main character, Titus Crown. Like all good characters, he's a bundle of different forces and stories he had a whole separate career with the FBI where we gradually learn about both his successes and failures he's back in Charon County to care for his aging father after the death of his mother his being elected to sheriff was not part of his long-term plan he wants to be a force for justice but he doesn't have any illusions about how thin on the ground justice can be did titus emerge out of the story or did he come to you as a character and you wrap the story around him
0: that's a great question um you know at at first so at first all the sinners bleed was really going to be much more about policing in america and police brutality and i started it in the wake of the murder of george floyd and uh fairly early on i realized that i wasn't I didn't have enough emotional distance from those issues to write effectively about them. You know, nobody wants a 300 page sermon. And that's what it was ended up uh, becoming. It was going to be a polemic. And so I decided to pull back and sort of widen my uh, my gaze on the story. And I knew I wanted to tell it from the point of view of, of a police officer, even after I changed the initial plot a little bit, because I wanted to show a character who is trying to do the right things. And, you know, Walter Mosley has this great quote that everybody has morals until they're tested. And so I wanted to show this character who's trying to do the right things. And I wanted to show a character who's a part of what is traditionally not um, a social uh, social organization, so to speak, that always does the right thing, uh, you know, police officers. Um, And so at first, the story was very much built around what I wanted to say. And I didn't really have a great grasp on Titus as a character. And then one day I had a conversation. uh, In in research for this book, uh, I talked to former police officers, both African-American and white. Uh, I talked to former sheriffs, and I didn't really have a good grasp on Titus. And then one day I had a conversation with a friend of mine who's a a former minister. He's he's, a... And he uh, was telling me about one of the things that bothered him about being a part of the quote-unquote traditional church. Is that he very quickly realized that he wasn't helping the least of us and that sort of opened the doorway for me with titus you know titus is human he's a he's a man has like you said contradictions and he's not perfect by any means but he really wants to do the right thing and i think the thing that allowed me to really nail him down was his desire to help the least of us you know he's elected sheriff he wants to be the sheriff for everyone in sharon county not just the people who supported him and i think he finds out fairly quickly that is a that is much more difficult than he anticipated but Titus as a character once I was able to nail that nail it sort of allowed me to create he to agree with him you know all great characters I think all good characters especially the ones I'm drawn to are people who overcome their feelings to do the right thing you know there's a difference between uh, say Michael Corleone in The Godfather and um uh, Toby in Hella High Water. Mm-hmm. There's a certain sense of guilt and a certain sense of conscience in Toby that is missing from Michael. Both great characters. But I wanted, I sort of explored that Michael Corleone style of character in Blacktop Wasteland and Raised Away Tears. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to look at the other side. Um, you know, I think uh, someone once said to me that a knight whose armor is clean is a knight who's never been tested. And so I wanted Titus to be sort of this knight errant, but I wanted his armor to show the battles he's been through, and uh, hopefully I succeeded. In that idea of a knight errant,
1: you know, you have Titus almost perfectly situated as a man almost without a country. Nope, nope. You know, black folks don't trust him because of a history of corrupt law enforcement in the county. White folks don't trust him either for a whole bunch of reasons from straight-up racism to people who don't mind a little corruption as long as it's their kind of corruption. And his own deputies see him with his FBI experience to be apart from the policing that they know. Mm -hmm. So why set Titus so far apart from everybody?
0: I think narratively, you know, the greater the struggle that you have to overcome, the greater the triumph, you know? Um, And again, I wanted him to be, it sounds sort of pretentious in his nail, but I wanted him to be this sort of mythic character. I I wanted him to be sort of this elevated character that rises above all the things that that are are in his way. You know, a good friend of mine, Ed Kurtz, who's a writer, said, writing is putting your character in a tree and throwing rocks at him. And I think (laughs) I threw threw bricks at Titus sometimes, uh, but I knew he could take it. You know, I knew he was the the person, the character who could withstand it, who could overcome. And I love characters like that. I, I think I started my career writing about characters who give in to the darkness. And there's nothing wrong with. It. I'm fascinated with that aspect of mm-hmm. humanity. I'm fascinated with that on an existential level. But I'm also fascinated about characters who refuse to give in to the dark side, who refuse to let the darkness in, or let the. Well, let me rephrase it Who are who refuse to let the darkness win? Because I think for Titus. Especially in in the confines of the story that we meet him in, he has to let the darkness in a little bit, but he never lets it corrupt him. He never let it touch who he really is. And so all these struggles that he have, all these issues, you know, with the town, with his deputies, with his love life, you know, with his you know with his father, with his brother, all these things are all these obstacles that he overcomes. So when he does overcome them, it makes his triumphs that much more moving and that much more um, satisfying. Um, but there are times where I felt bad for the guy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
1: you don't just chase him up the tree and throw rocks at him. I think you kind of set the tree on fire.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I got to. Sadly, I have to agree with that sentiment.
1: <laughs> You've talked about growing up in a place that is claimed by Confederate apologists and how you know, they sort of want to wrap their arms around a territory at the same time that every inch of that place has also been and is being inhabited by African-Americans enslaved and free. And so how does Sheriff crown look at Charon County through that lens? Is he in the border between those parallel worlds? Is he colliding with it? How, uh, how did those two ideas come together?
0: That's an interesting question. I love that. So Titus, Titus is of two minds. You know, there's a there's sort of a persona that he's created, that he's Sheriff Crown. You know, and he's you know he he wears his aviator sunglasses. His pants have a crease on them. sharpen up his <laughs> sliced bread, he sort of creates this persona because he understands you know that that pageantry and theat- theatricality. To uh, quote uh Ra's Al Ghul from uh, Batman Begins, is a useful tool. And so he creates this persona of the sheriff crown. But on the inside, there's a man named Titus. There's a little boy named Titus. And so there's a little boy who understands that there are people in the town that he loves, the place that he grew up, the place that he shared with his father and his mother and his brother, who think they own that. They think it's theirs in totality. And so there's a part of him that seethes with rage, you know, that barely below the surface there's anger and recrimination inside of Titus because he loves Charon as much as anyone else and so he sort of has to have these two ads of himself come together where there's Sheriff Crown who is totally unbiased in any respect to any citizen but then there's Titus Crown who is angry when he sees Confederate apologists walking in you know Civil War garb who's angry when he walks past The statue of old Rebel Joe dedicated to Confederate uh, soldiers, who feels this sense of almost hopelessness when he sees how divided his town is. And so, as a person, I think Titus is very much, he sees Charon in sort of a proprietary way. It's his too, and he loves it and he wants to protect it, he wants to be a part of it. But I think as sheriff, he understands that there are people who will never accept him as a part of it. And I think that saddens them. It saddens me as an individual. I live in a town where there's still a Confederate statue. I live in a town where, as I said time and time and time before, there are people who want to clean the place of my birth for them and them alone. And as I said before, every scrap of land that a good old boy walks upon who waves a Confederate flag today, someone who looks like me has bled and died and lived there. And it's just as much as mine as it is anyone else. So I think in that respect, Titus is sort of an avatar for me. Um, but uh, in every other respect, he's he's much cooler and uh, much smarter than me. But I think those are the times that I do speak through him.
1: Crimes in this book are dark, extremely dark. And as a not full time reader of crime fiction, I I actually put down the book for a little while when I got to the part early in the story where Titus discovers the horror of the crimes he's going to be investigating, and you know, and then follows them down into the darkness and they're terrible, but they're really well written. Now you've written horror before, including stories as a kid that were so scary. Teacher sent you to the school psychologist. (laughs) (laughs) So, so when you, when you're writing something that is more of a mystery, more of a crime novel, do you have to approach things that are dark and scary differently? than than if you were going at it in kind of a in, in full bore horror writer
0: style. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I think you can write horrific events in a mystery novel, um, but they can't they can't slip into supernatural. They can't slip into uncanny. <laughs> you know, and so you you really have to work within the rules of physics, I guess is a way of describing it. Um, whereas if you write a horror novel, like one of my favorite horror novels is *Salem's Lot*, and you know *Salem's Lot*, there's people floating outside the windows. There's yep. you know there that there's this sort of almost magical quality that is superimposed on top of these horrific, you know, very visceral events. You know, with people being bitten by vampires or what have you. Mm-hmm. I think when you're writing something that's grounded in reality, you do have to pull back a little bit. And so what that does, I think, for the writer is that you have to sort of play on the idea. Of the suspension of disbelief you have to sort of cajole the reader and you don't have to give them the full uh the full view of what you're doing uh, there are things that i write about and also Center's lead that are are terrible they're horrific um they'll be all horrific um and they're obscene i think and so i knew as a writer i don't have to show you all of that i just have to give you a glimpse behind the curtain your mind will fill in the rest of the blanks um, there are scenes in there that are you know the aftermath of something horrific and even that even though those scenes are are are, are, are very visceral very graphic you you come in, as you come upon them in the aftermath it almost gives you as a reader a little space to be like okay well at least we didn't see you know the then- face being cut off at least we didn't see you know what this person went through we see the aftermath of I think you do that in crime fiction because you don't have that sort of uh you don't have that sort of permission that horror gives you. you. know, horror is you write a horror novel, say for instance, Clive Barker is one of my favorite horror writers. You know, there is this moment in a horror novel where you're like, Oh my god, is he really gonna sh- Oh, he's showing us that. Okay, we're going there. And I think yeah. horror has that sort of permission where crime fiction does it. One of my one of the, the things that was a big influence. On All the Centers Bleed was the TV show uh, True Detective Season 1. And there's a lot of instances in that show where you're not shown what's going on. You're just given a glimpse. You're just given just the barest uh, uh, crack in the the wall to see just an image or or just an idea of what's going on. And again, I think that is more terrifying and more horrible than if you were just shown everything uh, full on in, in the bright light. Your mind creates these images that no writer can ever exceed. And so, for me, when I was writing about these really dark things, um, that was sort of the tactic of I just want to point you in the direction I want you to go. And then I want your mind to fill in the rest of the blanks. I think that's something that you have to do in crime fiction that, you know, horror gives you permission to just, you know, pull back the curtain or remove the the sheet as it were completely. And I think with, 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 crime fiction with mystery fiction um, we just want to point you in the direction and let you fill in the rest of the blanks which I, I actually find more intense as a reader uh, and I mm-hmm. love horror fiction but I think that you know Stephen King has his line where he was a kid he listened to radio shows and there was a show called Inner Sanctum and he said you know eventually Inner Sanctum became a TV show and he said you know that was scary and didn't work he said but there was a at the beginning of Inner Sanctum on the radio show there was this creaking door opening he said, there's nothing they could have shown on TV that looked as terrifying as that door sounded. And I've mm-hmm. always remembered that when I write scenes of extreme horror, extreme violence, of dark, you know, the inhumanity that we can the ourselves. Nothing I can describe is going to be as terrible as something that you create in your own mind. Uh, and so that's sort of the tactic that
1: I use. And so then as you're looking at the page, you know, as you have that scene down in front of you, do you find yourself subtracting, you know, taking things away to try and hit that balance point?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, when you first, like in the first draft, I write something and then I look and I, it's almost like the reversal of a sculpture, you mm-hmm. know, I'm like, how much do I need to occlude? How much do I need to hide? How much do I need to remove so that the reader is filling those blanks because again in much the same way like I said nobody wants a 300 page sermon you know nobody wants you know a 300 pages of, of you know a gross out comic and so there's a fine balance you have to find um, between the suggestion of the darkness the suggestion of you know the unspeakable but also I need to again I need to give you the roadmap. map um, but it's funny I had a conversation with the writer Dennis Lehane uh, a few months ago Last year, excuse me, we were at a convention, writers convention, and he was talking about how it's difficult for him to write novels nowadays because it's a, it's so hard to go to those dark places, you know. And I don't know what this says about him or me, but it doesn't bother me. Like I write, I write really dark stuff, and I, I can play with my cat. I don't maybe when I get older it'll bother me, but I think it's because it's so far removed from who I am and what I am. I think also. Mm-hmm. I know every dark thing that I write about is in service to the light. You know what I mean? Um, And so I am very, I just, I guess I console myself. The idea, yes, I'm writing this, I'm writing this horrific story, you know, about murder and crime and serial killers and just these, you know, the most, the most inhumane things, but I know where I'm going with it. I know where I'm taking my character. I know where my hero is going. And so, you know, no matter how dark the night is, I know as a writer, as the creator, as the author, the dawn is coming. And so that's the way, you know, somebody could say maybe that's my cop-out and I'm able to assuage my guilt that way, but it seemed to work for me. The books you're best known for, uh, before this one, Blacktop
1: Wasteland and Razorblade Tears, both feature protagonists with criminal records, people on the other side of the criminal justice system than a character like Titus Crown. What comes to you more easily, you writing the detective novel or... A more inherently criminal crime novel.
0: You know, I, I said this before. It's not easy writing outlaws, but it's easier. Because, you know, outlaws, they, they only have to abide by the code of ethics that they've given themselves, which a lot of times is very flexible. Um, you know, and <laughs> so Titus has got this own personal code of moral morals and ethics, but he's a sheriff. He's he has a, a he's bound by his office. So when I write about Black High and when I write about the character Bug. You know, Bug has a very flexible moral center, and so he only has to abide by the rules he's given himself. Same with other characters in, in our race, Blade, Ike, and Buddy Lee. They have a very flexible uh, sense of morality, and so it's easier. You know, like so when you write about a character like Titus, even without the star, without the without the badge, he's a more moral person. He has more consciousness than those characters, and so it does present a more challenging sort of set of criteria as a writer than with you write about outlaws you know like i said they just got to not get caught you know and so bug can run around town beating people up and kidnapping folks as long as they didn't get caught that's fine but for titus if he does something slightly wrong it bothers him he loses sleep on it you know bug doesn't lose sleep about anything tell you a story really quick so every mother's day i post on uh social media Uh, a clip from the movie 310 to Yemo with Russell Crowe and Christian Bale. And there's a scene in that movie where Russell Crowe's character, who's an outlaw, who's a sociopath, is being teased and needled by a deputy. And the deputy says something horrible about his mother. And Russell Crowe's character drags the deputy to the edge of a cliff. And right before he throws him off the cliff, he says, you know, Byron, I always liked you, um, but you never knew when to shut up. And he whispers in his ear, even bad men love their mamas. And he pushes the deputy off the cliff. And I post on social media I said, you know, I think Bug from Black Blacktow Wasteland would agree with that sentiment. And every year, someone, since I published that book, someone will come on my social media thread and comment, well, Bug's not a bad man. And it's like, yeah, yeah, he is. I Have you read the book? Because he kills a lot of people. And so it's sort of, you sort of have a little more flexibility when you write about a character like that. But for me, I enjoy the challenge of writing about Titus. Because again, at the end of the day, Titus is that, you know, that tarnished knight errant who really wants to do the right thing for everyone. And I think that's fascinating or it's as fascinating, if not a little bit more, than writing about, you know, the the badass outlaw.
1: You do introduce like a mirror image of Titus, his brother Marquis. He's cynical where Titus has optimism. He's a rule breaker where Titus upholds the law. And there's this scene between Titus and Marquise where Titus expresses his belief that broken systems can be fixed, that things can be made better than they are. And it's tempting to me, at least, to want to attribute that optimism to you. But then you've also written characters like Bug. You've also written Marquise's more cynical perspective. So I'm interested in where you
0: land on that optimism, cynicism spectrum yourself. I think... I'm in the middle. Um, I'm not as optimistic as Titus, but I'm not as cynical as Marquise. I think, you know, growing up as an African-American man in the South um, of a certain age, I've seen things get better. You know, I, I I cannot lie that things have gotten better than, you know, when I was a young boy, or a, a young man. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not ancient by any means now, but I'm older. And so I can say that things got better. But then I also see how, far we have to go with those systems, with judicial systems, with sociological systems, governmental institutions. You know, um, there's. I had this, you know, I think I'm one of those people, when, when President Obama was elected, I had this moment, really great optimism, mm-hmm. And but I never was as optimistic as say, some of my other friends who were like, well, we're in a post-racial moment. And I said, no, I don't think so. I don't think electing one black president allows us to enter a post-racial uh, moment in a country that you know enslaved people for 400 years. And I had a friend of mine who's a, a good friend of mine who's a sociologist, actually. She said, you know, what I'm afraid is going to happen is the, these systems because they've seen this advancement, they've seen this progress are going to give their, yes, she called it their death rattle. And it's going to, they're going to double, redouble, re-triple their efforts because they realize that things are changing. And I think we saw that. I think there was a a sort of rebound from obama um, with trump being elected and not just trump as an individual but what he represented was this sort of this sort of waking giant of a certain type of individual who looked up and looked around and was like oh oh wow these people that i've treated as minorities these people that i've treated as lesser as marginalized are making great strides and so i think we've seen that i think at the end of the day though i am more optimistic than i am cynical but I think a healthy dose of cynicism allows you to uh, to exist in our modern world. I think you have to be a little cynical um, to uh, exist in a world where, you know, the former president's been indicted four times. Uh, but at the end of the day, I think also I just I really do, you know, believe in our heart. People are good. I, I've been lucky to travel around the country in the last few years with these books on book tours to speak engagements. And I got to tell you, I've had more kindness shown to me than not. I've had more general camaraderie shown to me than not. And so I that gives me hope. That gives me optimism. But I think, you know, I'm my mother's child. And my mother was, uh, you know, you know, make a plan, you know, hope for the best, but uh, prepare for the worst. She used to say, you know, you know, you can leave the house. If it looks like rain, take an umbrella. So I think that's the way I look at it. It's interesting that you talk about that backlash, though,
1: which is so much about playing on fears and amplifying fears. Because in this book, fear is almost a force that is running on its own through the story. And we're living in in a real world now that seems to have spun itself up into a frenzy of conspiracy people obsessed about child abductions and human trafficking and shadowy cabals and, you know, plenty more on a national scale. Mm-hmm. That fear lives in the background noise of all of our lives, depending on how well mm-hmm. we've developed ways to tune it out. Mm-hmm. But was that something that you wanted to touch on or bring in to all the sinners please? Oh
0: yeah, absolutely. When I was writing it, I wanted to show in a microcosm what we're dealing with on a macro scale in America. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have this very real character In the book, who's a killer, who is you know in this town, who has been a part of this town, uh, you know, in hiding in plain sight, as some people say, and what that does is it creates this sort of sense of conspiratorial heightened awareness, Mm -hmm. um, where everyone's now afraid, everyone's reacting out of fear. You know, there's you know, and I because I've seen it, I've seen it happen. You know, like you said, on a larger scale, Um, this idea that someone's out there to get us, someone's going to hurt us, someone's gonna take something i have you know i think on a larger scale conspiracy theories are comforting for some folks because the alternative is there is no one in control that we're all we're all in this together but we're also on our own you know mm-hmm. i think for some people it is more comforting to believe like you said there's a shadow ball pulling the strings than to realize we don't know what we're doing there's a line in the book where titus um is reflecting on when his mother passed and he has a moment where he realizes adults really don't know more than kids. You know, he has this moment where he realized, oh, adults are just, you know, kids who got older. And so I think that terrifies people that Not there's it. nobody in charge. I think that's what the, uh, the allure of authoritarianism is, is that, oh, there's someone who's going to tell us what to do. There's someone who's going to tell me how to react, how to act. I had a conversation with a young writer and we were talking about books and writing and marketing and the the business side of of writing. And she said to me, she's like, well, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me, but I really wish you could just tell me how to write a bestseller. Tell me what I'm supposed to do. And I can't. And that's the terrifying thing about life. But I think for me, that's also exhilarating. You know, it's like, we don't know what we're doing, but let's see what happens. I'm of that mindset. And so I, I try to empathize with people who have really went down that rabbit hole of a conspiratorial type mindset because I understand the fear, but at the same time, I think that's what makes life exciting is we don't know what's going to happen next. Think how boring it would be if, you know, we sort of existed in this meta-Calvinistic universe where we knew everything that were ever going to happen to us until we, we you know, the end of our lives. And so when I wrote All of a Bleed, I wanted to touch on that. I wanted to touch on that sort of the comfort that people find in that. You know, they find in the idea of, well, there's someone out there, so we have to we have to, you know, lock our doors and and, and stand guard. Um mm-hmm. but ultimately that is reductive and that really saps the joy pay out of your life. And so like Titus, he's that uh bulwark against that mindset. You know, he's afraid. He has a conversation with his girlfriend in the book. Well, yeah, he's afraid, but he uses that fear to drive him to do the right thing. And I think that's what you have to do. I'd like to talk a bit about the job
1: of writing and what that looks like to you i uh, do you still write at a at a lap desk in the in the living room
0: <laughs> i i still do uh we got a cat recently which has made it a little more difficult when i had a dog <laughs> a, a dog get gear, like he just like to sit at my feet but the cat wants to see what's going on and oh there's a dangling part of simple no i'm kidding but uh, i still do <laughs> i still do write in the lap desk in my recliner uh, I like to write with music, stopped all my earphones. And, uh, it's funny, though, because we're in the process of building a house. And um, the uh, a designer asked me, he's like, you know, Mr. Cosby, what are your, your must haves to uh, use HD TV speak for a minute? And I said, "Yeah, I just want office with a door and a lock. And so, <laughs> like, <laughs> that's all I need is like everything else, whatever she wants is fine, but I just want a door with a lock. Not because I, I want to lock people out. I just, I, I think it's fun to go in there and just sort of immerse yourself in the world that you're building. Uh, for me, I see. I used to write, for years I worked, uh, I was a retail manager and I mm-hmm. wrote on my lunch break. I wrote in a coffee shop. And so noise, background noise, background sound, sort of the the uh, the, the, the stir and drag of, of background doesn't bother me. In fact, I enjoy it. Like I said, I write with music. I know a lot of writers who have to write in total silence. Um, But for me, it helps me get in a place I think writing for me is an beautiful, incredible art form. But I also look at it. I was raised in sort of a blue collar uh, home mm-hmm. and sort of a blue collar childhood, and so writing is something that I feel like you know people will tell you don't say it's a job. You know, once you call it a job, you lose the joy. No, it's a job that I enjoy. I love it, and I feel I have a duty, a responsibility to write stories. Um, I'm not as precious about it as I used to be. For instance, I don't wait. For inspiration anymore, you know, there's a school of thought where you have to wait to be inspired. You have to wait for the muse to touch you and talk to you, and I just don't think you can write effectively that way. I, I like sitting at a desk and thinking of stuff. Sometimes, I'll start a story doesn't go anywhere, you know. um One thing I do, which it sounds funny, uh but I'm a big fan of Pinterest. I I love looking at photos. And then yep. writing about the photo, like I just write short stories about my about the photo to myself. <laughs> sometimes nobody ever sees them. I just will pull up, you know, I'll type in Southern Gothic aesthetic, or I'll pull in urban uh, urban loneliness, and uh, and I'll type, you know, like a, you'll pull up something that looks like an Edward Hopper painting, and I'll write a story about it. Again, a lot of times it doesn't go anywhere, but sometimes it becomes a book. Um, you know, uh, that was sort of the, the the very 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 nascent beginnings of of Raised by Tears. I wanted to see pictures of old gangsters, of, you know, old outlaws who made it to the being old. And it brought up a picture of two actors, um, Danny Trejo and Ron Perlman. Oh, yeah. And I just started messing around with the idea of what, you know, what would be the story of these two guys? Why would these guys be together? And, it, and of course, it ended up morphing into totally different characters, but that was the beginning of it. Um, you know, for me, Writing is this thing that comforts me. It's my job. It's my passion. It's my joy. Um, All through my life, the ups and downs I've had, you know, even losing my mom, writing has always been there to sort of buoy me. You know, it's it's one of those things that, you know, I don't think I'm the best writer in the world. I think there are many, many writers that are better than me. But I think I'm pretty good at it. it. And I think if you're pretty good at something and it brings you joy. And that's really all that matters. You know, I've just been lucky that other people seem to share my, uh, my sentiment. When you were just starting as a writer, you know, and
1: you're putting in 60 hours a week in retail and still finding those moments to get stories written. It, it seems like when you're trying to fit writing around an already full life, does it feel like you
0: have more words than you have time to write them down? Oh yeah, definitely. I think when you when you have to make time to write, it also you have all these stories. You're like, I don't know if I'm ever gonna have time to put these stories down. I'm not know if I'm ever time to write all the things that are going on in my head. But also, when you do have time to write, it's so precious, you know, because you don't have time to, as my mom would say, you don't have time to lollygag. You have to write. You know, I have an hour for lunch. I have 58 <laughs> minutes where I get to write, and then two minutes to go back to work. So I really have to focus. I have to hit the hammer hard. I think. Once you have a little bit of success, um, you know, I I think not to be too facetious, but it is sort of the eye of the tiger. You know, once you start getting comfortable, you know, you can lose that spark that that gave you that sort of uh, that sort of uh, strength, that sort of inspiration, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, And so, I mean, I don't think you have to be like, you know, I don't think you have to be like I was like economically desperate to write good books. But I do think once you have a little bit of success, you have to remember what it is about writing that brought you to this place. And for me, I don't think I'll ever lose that spark because I've been very lucky to have a lot of success the last few years. But if you took all the success away, I still would tell stories. I've yeah. always told stories. Um, and so now I'm just very lucky that I feel like I have the opportunity to tell a lot of the story. I'll never tell all the stories I want to tell. But I feel like I'm closer now than I was ten years ago when nobody knew who I was. Uh, but even having that, having said that, I still was writing. You know, uh, you know, it's like my mom used to tell the story. I think it's a legend. I don't think this really happened, but she swore banana did. She is like that other story when that I was four or five years old, and she was reading the the Three Little Pigs to me. And at some point, I started complaining about the story because I didn't understand why they hadn't built all the houses out of bricks. If if she says like I was very upset about that like we had bricks this whole time and so I, you know it's one of those things I, I think she may have exaggerated the story a little bit but I do have a vague memory of that and so I just feel like this is the thing that I'm supposed to be doing this is my purpose you know I've had a lot of other jobs I've been fairly decent at them but I've never been as good at any job as good as I am at writing and that's not to say that's not an egotistical thing I just feel like it's just the thing I'm meant to do. And I'm very lucky that I found it, that I found that purpose. I just want 10 years from now to get the
1: 25 collected essays about Southern Gothic kitchens coming out of Pinterest. <laughs> <laughs> and, that you've been building up in a desk drawer somewhere. And
0: then one day it's going to be like, okay, there's nothing There's nothing else coming out. Here come the kitchens. Yeah, there's a whole pile of something out of the kitchen and. and you know, stainless steel Americana appliance knife. No. <laughs> there is one version of the
1: how to be a successful American novelist in the 21st century you know, tradition that says you go to a certain kind of school, and then you do an MFA in creative writing at a certain other school, and it goes on from there. And I, I don't know how true it is, but it's powerful because it's so specific. You know, it's like a recipe. You do this and you do this and then you do this and then you, uh-huh. you know, then you get your novel. You're part of the other version of the story, which is people try to figure out how to get a story out of themselves however they can. That is way harder to talk about because it has as many different versions as there are people. So when people ask you,
0: how do I do what you're doing?
1: What do you say?
0: And that's a really good question because um, people ask me that a lot, you know. And and here's the thing that I that I think is, I don't have many hot takes, so I'll say this is a a mild, warm, a yeah. lukewarm hot take. <laughs> I admire <laughs> I admire MFA programs. I have a lot of friends who are really great writers who have MFAs who have created writing degrees, and then, I was going to college for that uh, until I had to I had to drop out. My mom got my mom was already ill and she got sicker, so I had to come out. And I never did return. Um, But I think MFA's, they have a really great purpose because I think they do create a sort of professionalism in writing. That being said, I think you can learn the nuts and bolts of writing. I can teach you verb subject agreement. I can teach you active versus passive voice. I can teach you three-act structure and the hero's journey, you know, by Joseph Campbell. I can teach all those things. Can't teach you how to tell a story. I think you either have it or you don't. And I think that is, you see that sometimes, especially in, as you spoke about MFA programs, there are people who are going through those programs who can do the technical aspect of it, but it's not telling a story. You know, again, I'm going to quote uh, Stephen King. He has made, I, I'm probably getting this quote wrong, but he has, has something about, you know, he likes to play the guitar, right? And on a technical aspect, he's okay. You know, he's, he's not lighting the world on fire, but because he doesn't have, that spark of that thing that allows you to be a musician it sounds hollow you know he, you know, it doesn't as he said it's not boss it doesn't move and so <laughs> I think for me when I talk to people about how do you do what I do I tell them you know the thing that I did was I read a lot and I wrote a lot and it sounds very simplistic and it sounds a little pedantic but that's what I did um, but I think deep down inside I always knew I'd be a a writer. I never knew that the things that have happened would come to pass. I just felt like I just felt like I'm never happier than when I'm writing. And so that happiness has to mean something. It has to count for something. And so I figured eventually one day just through just my stubbornness and my spite, I would get published. And I think that's not what people want to hear. You know, Mm -hmm. when people ask me that Uh, they want me to tell them the magic bullet. They want you know uh, someone said mom said there's three rules of writing the first rule nobody knows the other two but they want the other two and I as, I can't give it to you all I can tell you is that I just had such a passion for writing and such a love for the art form I just had this confidence that one day someone would take notice of my writing other than say you know my mama and my girlfriend you know because your mama and your girlfriend gotta like your writing um, <laughs> well your mama do your girlfriend doesn't have to um, and so like you said it is very frustrating for people when they talk to me because I don't have the answer. I don't know the secret sauce, so to speak. All I can tell you is what I did. And what I did was read a lot and write a lot. And, mm. and it's not easy. And that's not the uh, the sexy answer. That's not the fun answer. But it's the answer that's the truth.
1: Something you mentioned in your, in your book acknowledgements and some, some interviews you've given is that you have had a community of writers around you supporting you, you know, you've been engaging with can you tell me a little bit about them and the role they've played oh, as you've as you've developed your career
0: they're indispensable there's a reason they're always acknowledging my books and i'll, I'll mention a few here uh eric pruitt Nikki dolson james df hannah uh james Queeley, um Joe jordan harper who is in my opinion one of the great crime writers of the last 25 years um those folks that i they knew me before I was S.A. Cosby you know they knew me when I was mm-hmm. just Sean Cosby trying to get published trying to write um, they were here before the the halcyon days you know and they're the folks that are always honest with me and vice versa I'm always honest with them we trade each other's manuscripts we talk about story we get really nerdy talking about narrative and story and structure um, but those folks are the folks that Keep me buoyed. Keep me floating. Keep me up when things aren't going great. You know, I would love to tell you that every book comes out, you know, as smooth and as shiny as a as a as a new egg. Um, but it doesn't. You know, the process sometimes for writing a book, for me, at least, it's like chopping down a tree. Sometimes it feels like you're using a chainsaw. and Sometimes it feels like you're using an axe. And sometimes it feels like you're using a butter knife. And those folks are there when the butter knife days come upon you. And they help keep you centered and they help keep you grounded. But they also, you know, they encourage you to be great. I had a conversation recently with Jordan where we were talking about books and writing and what we wanted our legacies to be, what our careers to be. And, you know, it's good having a friend who not only supports you, who is honest with you, but also inspires you. You know, friends who are like, inspire you to not just say, hey, I really like to write a good book. But friends who inspire you, like, no, I want to write a classic. I want to write a book that in 15 years people are still talking about whether they will or not having friends who inspire that desire in you is indispensable I I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for them um you know because writing is such a weird obsession you know it's like it's like writing a book is like telling yourself a joke for nine months and hoping everybody else gets the punchline. and I don't think very many people understand it unless they're writers you know that struggle that you have as a writer, between choosing the right word to describe darkness, or, or, this sentence just doesn't sound right, and you spend maybe hours trying to get the rhythm down. If you try to explain it to somebody who's not a writer, you sound crazy, because you are a little crazy. Um, and so other writers understand in that madness, and they join you in it, and so it, it's not so bad, you know. Like we're all on the crazy train together. So at least I'm here with my friends. And that's uh, sort of what that community uh, does for me. All the
1: Sinners Bleed is your fourth published novel in as many years. But unlike, I think, every other crime novelist on the bestseller list, you're writing standalone novels, not series. Do you see yourself carrying on stories with any of the characters you've written? Or are these complete exactly as you've told
0: them? And then every book starts again from a blank page. You know, it was funny. A couple of years ago, if you'd ask me that question, I would say, yeah, that's it. I just write complete stories. Every book's a closed loop and we're moving on to the next. But I've sort of started doing this thing where characters from previous books are mentioned or referenced in current books. You know, uh, I wrote a book called My Darkest Prayer, which is my first book. <laughs> it's published on an independent uh, publisher label and it's been re-released by Flatter. <laughs> and there's a character in there named Nathan uh, Waymaker and he makes a cameo in All the Sinners Bleed. Um, you know, I, 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 I have this desire to maybe tell more stories about bug from all, uh, from, uh, blackout wasteland. Uh, I, I maybe want to see what happens to him after the end of the book. I haven't, I have a really deep desire to write a prequel to blackout wasteland about bugs father. Um, and so those ideas, I don't think I'll ever be a writer who writes long series uh stories, but I definitely do want to revisit some of these guys, you know, like with Titus, you know, I wrote all is bleed, and at the end of it, I, th- I thought, oh you know, I really created an interesting character with Titus, and I thought I told a good story with. Him. But the big dude, he's grown on me. You know, he's he's <laughs> somebody that I think has a few more things to say. And again, like I said, I think if you ask me, am I going to write a series like Lee Child or Jack Reacher, or I'm going to write like Elmer Leonard, where he revisited characters over the years? I think I'm probably closer to the Elmer Leonard style. Uh, Or template. Um, But I think, you know, I think that's okay. I used to think you shouldn't do that. I used to really be a true believer of the standalone idea. But I find it interesting to maybe revisit these characters and see where they are and see what's happened with them and sort of uh, talk to them again and see how life is treating them. And so you're probably going to see Titus again. I have a whole quatrology that I want to write about Bug and his family, about him, his father, and his grandfather and his sons so that's probably you know god willing and the creek do rise coming on down the line um i think as i get older those characters and revisiting them is very comforting you know it's very it it feels good because i feel like i've created something to these characters that can t- stand in the test of time and so it's uh it's very interesting as a writer but as a creator um it's just heartwarming to go back and see how to do it. I mean, I'm going to put them through hell, but um, <laughs> it's still fun to revisit with them and talk to them a little bit.
1: Sean, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you
0: guys for having me. This was a pleasure. It really
1: was. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with S.A. Cosby, author of All the Sinners Plead. Find it in all the books we spoke about at Kobo and Conversations Home on the Web, kobo.com slash conversation and check the show notes for a link subscribe in your podcast player of choice to catch every episode and if you enjoyed this one tell somebody Kobo and Conversation is produced by Nathan Maharaj and hosted by me Michael Tamblyn thank you for listening